Hi, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Norm Tebow with our podcast today. I am so honored to have uh, as a special guest, Dr. Nim Tottenham, who is the director of the Developmental Affective Neuroscience Lab at Columbia University. And I'm aware, Nim, you, you've also done research with UCLA and Yale universities and others, have, have you not? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So throughout my training and my career, I've moved um, through various institutions. That's wonderful. Well, the research of the Developmental Affective Neuroscience Lab focuses on the developmental development of neural circuits that underlie affective behaviors across childhood and adolescence. One major focus of their laboratory is to characterize normative human brain development. They use behavioral, physiological, and functional MRI methods with the aim of identifying sensitive periods during which the environment has the largest influence on neural phenotypes. And, and a second major focus, which, which is really salient to, to all our adoptive parents is to characterize the effects of early life stress on human brain development. To meet that aim, they also study the neurodevelopment of children and adolescents who experience various forms of early life stress, such as adverse caregiving, in the hopes of understanding the long-term effects of early adversity on human brain development. And that, boy, does that tie into what we talk about. Dr. Tottenham is a recipient of the American Psychological Association's Distinguished Scientific Award for Early Career Contribution to Psychology, the National Institute of Mental Health Biobehavioral Research Awards for Innovative New Scientists Award, and the Developmental Science Early Career Researcher Prize. She received her bachelor's degree in psychology from Barnard, Barnard College of Columbia University and her doctoral degree from the University of Minnesota. You must have worked with Dr. Gunner at the University of Minnesota, Megan Gunner. I did. She was uh, one of my thesis advisors, and um, she's amazing, and we're still very close. Well, you, yeah, I would imagine your research parallels one another. She's just phenomenal. I, I think her research, I, I'm so grateful for people such as yourself and, and, and Dr. Gunner and, and other researchers that we, we get to build our programs based on what you found, and so... I'm just so grateful because, you know, what the kids are being taught here on our campus is directly due to the research that you guys are doing that we get to benefit from. So thank you. Thank you for, for all you do. Uh, I, I should also mention that uh, many of you parents know that uh, I'm, I'm the president of the Attach organization, and I'm so honored that uh, Dr. Tottenham will be our keynote at the Attach conference in Minnesota in early October 2021. We uh, absolutely hope we can do that in person. <laughs> that remains to be seen, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and on Planet Norm, another hope is at some point down the line, Three Point Center will be able to partner with Dr. Tottenham's work to increase our knowledge on early life stress and adopted adolescents. So with that, you guys, I, I give you Dr. Tottenham. We're thrilled to have you, Nim, and uh, it's an honor to, to, to be able to speak with you today. Thank you, Norm. It's, uh, it's really great to be here with you, and uh, it's an honor for me to be asked. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So a, a little background, if you don't mind. How, how did you become involved with uh, attachment and trauma research? How did you decide to jump into that? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's always a question that's hard to really put your finger on. How did you get involved with something? But I think that uh, a few things kind of came together both uh, personally as well as professionally. Mm -hmm. In my own family, there's 
there's um, been, for one reason or another, a number of um, situations where there's been disruptions in children's care early in life. So I think throughout my whole life, I've, I've had a deep personal interest. And professionally, I've always um, just been struck by how weird humans are. And I'll explain. So what I mean is, humans spend a really long time being young compared to other species. If you think about, you know, having a kitten, you know, within a year, that kitten is no longer a kitten anymore. And in humans, you know, we stay juvenile for the first two decades of life. And, and in order to do that, we've got to have parents and having parents is a luxury that humans have for a long time. So that's a long way to say that I've always been really compelled intellectually by this role that parents are playing in shaping brain development of children. In other words, for the human species, we really are, you know, we have a, a great understanding and appreciation now that our brain development is not the result of just genes, just genetic influences, the way that we used to think about it, but really, especially in the case of the human that takes so long to grow up, that we really are the product of many, many years of accumulated influences. Wow. Wow. And you know, that that's important for our parents. We talk a lot about the sensitive period of attachment, but that, you know, really, you know, it, it seems like when I was in graduate school, for example, we talked about the end of adolescence being around the age 18. And now we know that's probably the midpoint of adolescence, if not, you know, the latter part. It seems like the only ones who get it right are the rental car companies because they don't let you, you know, rent a car until you're 25. That's right. They looked at the data and they saw, and I think that's a good point. I mean, when we, um, when we know information about critical periods, um, I think that that or sensitive periods, though, that's, um, you know, extremely valuable information. But I think it's also important to remember that those data were collected from typically, you know, typically collected from infants who have had a quote unquote, more typical caregiving background. So right. we're really it's early days in what we know about children who have had other types of experiences um, during those early years. Yeah, makes total sense. Now, you, you've been particularly focused on the links between experiences early in life and then emotional functioning later in life, right? Because this is a, qu a question so many of our parents, you know, that we work with is my, you know, is healing possible? Is this going to get better, right? Can you, can you share with our, our, our listening parents, help us understand some of the links between experiences early in life and emotional functioning later in life? Yes. Um, so what many groups, including our own, have uh, been finding is that, especially within the first few years of life, the brain, the human brain is really, really plastic, meaning that it's really ready to learn from its environment. And um, that can be a double-edged sword if the environment is highly nurturing and responsive to the needs of the infant, then that's the type of learning that is going to, you know, lead to um, robust emotion regulation circuits, for example. Mm -hmm. 
But if the environment is somehow not meeting all of the infant's needs or and or includes um, threats to the infant or um, an absence of necessary input, then we're talking about um, the potential for different developmental pathways. So one of the things that I want to be very clear about is that what the research has uh, shown us is that these links between early experiences and later outcomes are by no means deterministic. Mm -hmm. So we know that um, two children can experience the same thing and have very different outcomes. Mm -hmm. But we also know that those adverse traumatic early experiences can significantly increase the risk for later emotional difficulties. Um, so broadly, I'll call those emotion regulation difficulties, but there are a lot of behaviors that fall under that umbrella, including anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, attachment difficulties, substance abuse, um, and, and the list goes on. So um, we, what we're learning about why there's such a strong link between those early experiences, which, you know, as I know your families are well aware of, often happen even before children have an explicit memory, right? Yeah. You know, most people can't remember things before the age of three. That's true for everyone. That's called infantile amnesia. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these experiences are happening during that time when we don't have memories. Mm -hmm. So how is it that they're um, leading to this increased risk for these difficulties later on? And one of the reasons has to do with the development of the neurobiology that's supporting those emotional behaviors. So for example, um, in regions like uh, regions of the brain, like the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex that my lab is particularly interested in, um, the amygdala very briefly is the um, collection of um, cells in the brain, their brain cells that are responsible for learning about the relative safety and danger of the environment, for maintaining a heightened state of vigilance, for reacting really strongly to something that is really exciting or really threatening in the environment. So anytime you feel that big emotional arousal, you're really talking about the amygdala um, and related circuits getting engaged. So when I talk to a lot of parents whose children might be struggling with emotions, they'll often describe their child as going from zero to 60 very quickly. And so that makes me think about the amygdala. It's, um, it's a survival circuit in the brain, right? If you are encountering danger in the environment, you want the amygdala to become engaged really quickly. That's, that's a good thing. The difficulty is when you're chronically activating the amygdala and when it's not needed, when there really isn't such a source of danger any longer in the environment, but your amygdala has um, still that kind of trigger readiness about it. So um, the amygdala has these strong connections with the prefrontal cortex. Um, the prefrontal cortex is this much later developing region of the brain that plays a significant role in helping to calm the activity of the amygdala.
And when I say connections, you can imagine a physical bridge, a physical biolog biological bridge between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. And um, what we care a lot about when we are thinking about children that have been exposed to significant traumas and stressors early in life is how that bridge is developing. So that was the neuroanatomy, quick neuroanatomy lesson. Early in life, we know that the amygdala is really, maybe more so than it will ever be, really responsive to stressors in the environment. Yeah. So the amygdala is undergoing its most rapid growth in the first three years after birth, and it's rich with stress hormone receptors. So in other words, biologically, the amygdala during the first three years of life is really ready to be affected by the environment. And it's one of the reasons why we care so much about the early environment. That's not to say that later environments also aren't very, very important, but there is this sort of elevated status of those first few years of life. So um, we what the amygdala learns about the environment, let's say that it's growing up in a highly threatening environment, the amygdala is going to do its best job to help the child survive in that environment. Yeah. So um, it may become highly reactive to even very small stressors, things that you and I, it might roll off our backs for a child that experienced um, some chronic stressors early in life, the amygdala may be firing very quickly too often and too high. And when that continues to happen into adulthood, at adolescence and adulthood, that's where you start to see a lot of those, you know, what we would consider maladaptive behaviors, where it's no longer necessary to react with such intensity to um, small provocations. You know, it, it's interesting. I mentioned to, to Nim prior to, to getting on that I was in the wilderness today and I was meeting with a young person who's going to come to Three Point Center here in a little bit. And he said, my biggest problem is my anger. I just get so angry so fast and I don't even know why. And I think, you know, he's speaking to exactly what you're referring to now. Yeah. And, you know, he said it, you know, what, what I'm imagining he's describing that's going on in his head is um, what we're understanding more and more is that these behaviors like his anger um, in his day-to-day -day life, that may may present him with a lot of problems. It may get him into a lot of trouble, right? In exactly. the classroom, with friends, um, in public, with his parents. Yep. But what we're understanding is that that actually, that big reaction might have once served a purpose for him. It was functional. It was functional. Yeah. And so that was his little brain's best job that it could do to handle the circumstances that it was experiencing. It's just that the environment changed so drastically to become a more nurturing environment, but his brain was still reacting as if it were experiencing the original environment. Well, and, and you're highlighting one of the, such a challenge for our parents. You know, nobody wants to have to have their child come to residential treatment. We should be a last resort, absolutely a last resort. 
But what's interesting, at least what I find is, you know, schools are prepared to manage that. You know, teachers have their handful trying to teach students. And so when someone has an anger issue, what have you, the sad thing is our kids get labeled bad kids, oppositional defiant. Everyone here has been diagnosed ADHD, you know, and it's hypervigilance. Um, it, it seems like there's a gap there between what we're learning and the way that we practice this in schools, in, in the juvenile justice system. Um, it's, it's very black and white. You're either a good kid or a bad kid. Yeah. One of the things that I've found, and I don't know if you've had these conversations with people too, but um, because we, in my lab, we do a lot of um, brain imaging that we have the technology to be able to um, look at children's amygdala reactivities and sizes of amygdalas. Um, parents will often ask me, you know, does my, ch does my child have a hyperactive amygdala? And um, I, I really understand the reason parents are asking that question. What struck me is um, sometimes knowing that changes the narrative for families about where behaviors are coming from. And I think the same would be true within schools. So if there's, it sort of changes where the, um, the bad, the reason for the quote unquote, bad behavior, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so if schools just see the child's behavior, there's sort of an interpretation that the child is being bad on purpose, that they, they meant to do that. But with a deeper understanding of neuroscience, what I often find is that a light bulb goes off in a different way in people's minds. Like, oh, they're acting that way because their brain has developed in a certain way to react that, that way. And it sort of, it slightly changes the seat of responsibility of those behaviors. I don't know if I'm saying that in a way that makes sense, but. It, it makes absolute sense. It truly does. Yeah. And, and, you know, for our parents, they get, unfortunately, oftentimes they're blamed because, you know, people right. are judging them, you know, if, well, if you were better parents or if you were more disciplined or, you know, right. whatever, and you, your heart was out to these parents who are just, you know, there's no book on this unless, of course, that's you're writing, right. You know, it, it, that's it's right. So challenging for them, um, and and so a lot of times, you know, it's it, it falls to the juvenile justice system. It falls to discipline, um, and then and then, of course, another worry our parents have is okay, but when they turn 18, the 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 world doesn't care about your reasons. They care about yeah. results, and uh, it's kind of a daunting proposition for many of them. I can appreciate that for sure. Um, you know, any, uh, I think that you and your families know this much better than anybody else, but those um, transition points in particular are, are really delicate times in anybody's life, yeah. but especially in the life of a child who has um, experienced earlier trauma who has experienced a lot of transitions in their lives. They're, each of those, you know, turning 18, leaving the, the family, for example, those represent big moments where it's almost like all the lessons have to be relearned again in a concentrated form. It has to happen really fast, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's scary for anyone, but I, I um, imagine, especially for someone who 
might have learned that um, the world may not be a safe place or they're, you know, they're deep down unconsciously um, question how safe and secure and accepting the world is going to be of them. I, I have to ask, you know, we, there's a debate in the field of adoption. Um, Nancy Verrier some years ago wrote a book called The Primal Wound, which spoke of the trauma of adoption in and of itself. Scared a lot of adoptive parents, right? Mm. And then there's others who go, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to that theory because just as you've said, Nim, there's that sensitive period and, and, and children are resilient. There is that plasticity and uh, responsive parenting can help heal a lot of things. From your research, do you believe that um, adoption in and of itself is traumatic to the brain? I don't. I, from what we've seen, adoption is probably one of the biggest interventions in a child's life who's experienced a lot of trauma. Um, I think that um, the many children um, who have been adopted have unfortunately also experienced a number of traumas unrelated to the adoption. Yeah. Um, and there's probably no better thing that can happen to them than mm -hmm. to be, um, you know, adopted into a family and provided with that sense of security and stability, because that's, that's the foundation of all of our sense of safety and mental health health. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's especially true for children who experienced early traumas. I think that um, adoption or moving into a new family would be stressful for anyone. It would be stressful for anyone to move into a new place. But that's very different than a trauma um, that we're talking about in terms of the types of things that are really increasing the risk for these um, emotional and behavioral problems. Your, your research speaks to parental buffering. Can you speak to our parents about parental buffering and, and kind of explain that? Yeah. So um, a number of researchers, both those that are studying children and adolescents, as well as non-human animals like rats, um, what do we have in common with rats? Well, there's a lot of differences, but one of the things that we have in common is that we um, are born live and we have a need as an infant for someone to take care of us. That's true for humans as well as rats. Um, part of that process is the parent playing a big role in regulating us. And what I mean by that is they regulate us in terms of they, they regulate how hungry we are by feeding us. They regulate our temperature by putting warmer clothes on us, for example. They also regulate our emotions. And um, parents, do, parents regulate emotions in a variety of ways. One of the ways that they can do this is through a process called buffering whereby the presence of the parent can have a big impact on blocking or mitigating some of the, the biological stress reactions that children have to environmental stressors. So if you think about an example um, of an infant getting inoculations, um, Megan Gunner has shown that um, the parent's presence during the infant's inoculations 
the infant will scream, but their stress hormone release is significantly decreased if their parent is there. That's an example of the parent buffering this stress response. You can think about a more benign example. Um, if a child has to enter a new classroom on the first day of school, a young child, um, many parents have experienced that their child may be a little bit braver if they can walk in with their parent. So there are many examples that we see where children's behavior is very different when their parents are around versus when they're not. Children are a little bit less stressed. Children are a little bit braver when their parents are around. And so that's all a piece of this parental buffering. And at the neurobiological level, what's been seen again across species, including humans, is that early in life, the parents are also buffering some of this amygdala reactivity that I was describing earlier. So the parent's presence is keeping the amygdala quieter in response to um, things in the environment. So if you remember, I said that the prefrontal cortex is playing a role in adults in quieting the amygdala. Well, the prefrontal cortex takes a long time to develop. What you can think of the parent doing is they're playing the role of a prefrontal cortex for the child during a time when the child's prefrontal cortex is still immature. So the parent is helping to quiet the overactivity of the amygdala in the same way that when we're adults, our prefrontal cortex helps to quiet the activity of the amygdala. That's so interesting. I, I, I often say to parents that, um, or, and to our staff here is that, you know, we need to be in a space where the kids can borrow serenity from us when mm -hmm. they're not in a serene space. And that's right. Uh, it it, it sounds right. like research speaks to that. Definitely. What we've seen, what many labs have seen um, is the, the parent is really playing this critical role in being a conduit of the emotional world to the child. Mm -hmm. So if the parent is, um, you know, expressing serenity or, you know, teachers or close adults are expressing serenity, that is going to do, be a huge help to the child um, feeling that as well. Conversely, if the parent is reacting mm -hmm. in a very big, dramatic way, then the child is going to also um, interpret the world that way. So the parent plays a very powerful role, one that we take advantage of and often don't recognize. Mm -hmm. um, the parent's playing this really big role on the child's behavior and brain in a way that looks like what we might expect if we were giving drugs to somebody, right? But it's not a drug. It's a social um, relationship that's having the same biological impact on the brain. It's, it, it's really fascinating and a miracle for, for some of our kids um, to, to be able to have that serenity. I know some parents are wondering, well, is there a point? Okay, let me back up a little bit. A lot of our kids, Nim, the parents will say, hey, they were doing great in childhood. I mean, typical problems, this and that. But then around age 11 or 12, they really started to decompensate. Things went downhill pretty quickly. Does your research speak to that at all? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, something we hear from parents and something we've seen. And it's, again, you know, not true of all uh, kids who are so transitioning into adolescence. Um, but, but it is something that parents report. And again, it's still early days, but what, what seemed to be some likely reasons, there's a few things. One is, well, that transition is tough for everybody, um, regardless of your history. And, um, you know, we, we just talked about transitions as being big moments in everyone's life this pubertal change is another big transition. And it's accompanied by big changes in brain development. So we know that this switch from being a child, you know, an elementary school child to a teenager is accompanied by massive changes in emotional Mm -hmm. brain circuits, um, in self-control brain circuits, Um, in sensation-seeking brain circuits. Um, And in general, speaking, you know, in evolutionary time, that's a good thing. It's, you know, it's those emotional changes like sensation-seeking that you want an adolescent to start being sensation-seeking because they should be seeking something else besides what's in the home, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise they would never leave home. So you've got to have them want to. Yeah, So in general, those are human adaptations, but they also um, can increase children's vulnerabilities or adolescents' vulnerabilities to emotional behaviors that may be maladaptive, um, things like depression and moodiness um, and anger and frustration and anxiety. So we know the neurobiology is changing rapidly, especially for someone who's experienced a number of traumas and adversities early in life. Um, they're sort of, it's, it's like a, a one-two punch situation in a way. So it's going to be a more difficult bridge to navigate. Another big um, change that's happening and is receiving more and more attention is sleep. So sleep plays a major role in our emotional well-being. Um, That's true for anybody. And um, sleep seems to take a, make a big, you know, paradigm shift as you switch from being a child to being a teenager. Mm -hmm. So teenagers go to bed later and they're still waking up earlier in most school systems. Um, they're also more likely to have, you know, screens in their room, which is keeping them busy during the night. If you're prone to anxiety and depression, when you're falling asleep is the time when you're going to start to ruminate on all the worries from the day, which is going to make your sleep even more difficult. And the quality of your sleep tends to be poor when you're an adolescent relative to when you're a child. Mm -hmm. So that change in adolescent sleep, and I should say, um, we, we know that children who've experienced early life, significant early life stress also really struggle with sleep. Yes. Um, I see that quite a bit here. Yeah, and it really, in, in, through my read, it hasn't received a lot of attention from the research world. So I, um, I have interviewed many, many parents throughout the years, and we would do standard, you know, psychological 
psychological screeners asking about anxiety, depression, PTSD, et cetera. And then I would get through the end of the standardized instrument and I would ask parents, is there anything else we haven't talked about today that is um, difficult? And they said, you know, sleep would come up so often. And so we started thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe we're not studying this. So we, um, we started collecting information about sleep and um, it seems that sleep is difficult for children. And there's so many reasons why sleep would be difficult um, for a child who's experienced stress. You know, sleep is for all of us a time when we are most vulnerable um, and if you're someone who's hypervigilant, that is going to keep you up, right? Yes. It doesn't benefit you to um, be vulnerable and, and the list goes on. But the point is that sleep seems um, difficult in preschoolers. It seems difficult for uh, those who've experienced early life stress. It seems difficult in the elementary school years. And it continues to be difficult into adolescence and young adulthood. So if you couple that with this transition into adolescence, when everybody's sleep is getting worse, I think that that's real uncharted territory for why parents might see these um, big changes in emotional behaviors. Wow. And there, there's so much to that. You know, you reminded me of, uh, it was Dr. Stephen Forges who talked about the most vulnerable we will be is unconscious and immobile which is sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. he also talked about the idea that for kids who've suffered developmental trauma, their cortisol levels are actually highest in the evening, as opposed to most folks when they're highest in the morning. So, yeah. Uh, and we, we see that with kids. Yeah. I, one more, um, you know, uh, reason we might think about is for all adolescents, mm -hmm. this is a time when your developmental job is to start wanting to leave your parents. And I think that all children, adolescents have ambivalence about that, right? They, they wanna be with their parents, but they wanna leave and be with their friends and develop romantic relationships. And I would imagine that for a child who um, has gone through adoption, right? They've gone through separation from their bio parents and they've been adopted that that might be an especially large challenge dealing with those emotions of wanting to be independent from my family, but also, um, but, but wanting to maintain that tie. I would imagine the ambivalence is even greater. Well, and, and, and to even add to that, if I might, there's also those ties with the birth family and the struggles right. that have to do with loyalty and the rescue yes. fantasy and these other variables that, they, they can complicate things so much for these kids and they're, they're trying to make sense of all these feelings they have and these ties and loyalties. So you speak right to the heart of that. Yeah. So question I have, when we talk about parental influence, um, borrowing serenity from our parents, is there an age in adolescence where you believe in them that that wanes? Or I, I guess I know our parents are wondering, well, how long will I have this kind of influence with my kids, you know, even adolescents, even later in adolescence, into early adulthood, I guess. Yeah, so this is a, a really active area of research because it's, it's such an important question. What I will say is clear is, although we start off life with the highest levels of brain plasticity, mm -hmm. and they tend to, you know, that plasticity gets lost over time, 
it cannot get completely lost. Um, and there are some really simple examples that we could turn to. Anytime you learn something new, you're using brain plasticity, right? So I, I teach college undergrads and talk about this. And I say, you, you have to still have a lot of brain plasticity. Otherwise, there would be no reason for you to be in college, right? If you had no brain plasticity, you couldn't learn anything new. So clearly, we retain a lot of brain plasticity as humans, um, especially throughout the adolescent years. It's lower than it was when we were two and three years old, but it's still um, quite significant. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, the, the questions really are, how do we take advantage of that brain plasticity for adolescents who have experienced um, early life stress? And um, those are, I'm, you know, you'll have to invite me back in a couple of years. Um, for some research-based data, but I think that we can turn to families' experiences or clinical experiences anytime we go to a therapist and experience benefits of clinical work, that's also taking advantage of our brain plasticity as adolescents or adults. So I think that there is lots of evidence just from everyday experience that adolescents, even those who have experienced early life stress are benefiting from continued brain plasticity in the context of highly nurturing supportive environments. Wonderful, that's very hopeful for our parents that that influence, that window of influence will be present throughout their lives, really. Yeah. So knowing that, are there some suggestions you would have for adoptive parents on the best ways that they can uh, convey this sense of uh, safety and connectedness with their kids? What can adoptive yeah. parents do to uh, promote healing? Yeah, so, um, so I'm not a clinician, um, so I don't have clinical advice. I will leave that to you and your team. But I think from, uh, from a research standpoint and also just from you know, my family's own personal experiences, what I tell people is the best thing that a family can do is just keep coming back, right? Instilling that message that I'm not going anywhere. Um, and I think that um, it's so simple, but I think it's the most profound thing that needs to get under the skin. And it can take years for that to get under the skin. But I, you know, imagine that for a child who has let's say, been separated from birth parents, experienced a number of difficult things with that birth family, might have experienced a number of foster families prior to adoption. There was a strong lesson learned there that love might be conditional. You yeah. know, young children are really, um, you know, to use a psychological term, they're really egocentric. They think that everything in the world happens because of their behaviors. So no matter what you tell them at some level, they think that maybe they were separated because of something they did. And that teaches a lesson that love is conditional, which is a very scary message to learn. So I imagine that the big task for the adoptive family is beating that idea out and replacing it with 
love is unconditional. I don't care, you know, what behaviors you engage in. I don't care about X, Y, and Z. I'm not going anywhere. And I think that that's probably the most healing message um, that any child can, can learn. I, I want to emphasize something you said, which is it could take years for that to sink in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I know that's true. I've seen it happen, but I also know it does take time. If you're talking about neural healing and really understanding and accepting that message. Yeah. Um, we did a webinar. I did a webinar uh, last week for parents of kids who are 17 turning 18. And what was interesting to them that it, it, it hadn't dawned on me the way it should have. But a lot of adopted kids who turn 18 think their adoption's done at that point. Mm-hmm. It expires. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, simple things and just reminding them of the message. We're family forever. We're a family. We're not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that that is, um, I can imagine that needing to be repeated many more times in the context of adoptive families than um, in families, in birth families. And, you know, to the point where it feels like, but my kid knows that, right? But maybe they know it at one level, but you've got to speak to those deep levels of the brain, which require a lot of repetition, right? They're, they're, they're infant parts of the brains. They don't speak language, And so it's really through that repetition over and over again, just like with a baby, um, that that message has to keep coming through. Well, and I think that also speaks to the importance of the self-care part for our adoptive parents, because when they're taking care of themselves, then they can have the capacity to be there for their kids. Because so many times when you're at the edge of things and your child has told you to F off for the last time and they've stolen something or they've snuck out and you're just you're fearing yeah. and you're scared. You've got to be able to have your own reservoir of goodwill to be able to draw upon. And that comes through your own self-care. Absolutely. I, you know, we have shown many, many different uh, research groups have shown that the, um, the well-being of the parent is of the utmost importance for the child's uh, emotional health. And it's for the reason that we discussed earlier that the parents really are the conduits. They're the funnels of the emotional climate uh, and emotional learning to the child. So just as a calm, regulated parent is a really effective buffer, an anxious or frustrated, um, exhausted parent is a really not good buffer they're, if anything, a really good exacerbator of the child's distress. And so when we think about um, the child uh, and children's well-being, we really are talking about the family's well-being. And so when we, you know, if we care about supporting children, we really need to be thinking about how do we support families because that is, you know, there's an old saying that I'm sure you're familiar with by Winnicott that there, he said, there is, there is no such thing as an infant. And what he meant was in the human, you never have an infant. You always have the infant in the context of a family. And we can extend that to children and adolescents. There is no such thing as a child or an adolescent. There's always the child 
within the context of the family. So their mental health includes the well-being of um, their parents and siblings as well. Well said. So, so being mindful of your time, Nim, I have one more question for you. There's, this is such an exciting time for research, you know, with neural imaging, epigenetics, polyvagal theory, and on and on. What do you see on the horizon as far as, you know, research in the future? There's so many things. I mean, as you said, the, the research and the technology is growing at exponential speed. We have um, neuroimaging, which um, has been around for a few years, but it's still very much in its infancy. The ability to see the activity and the growth of a human brain um, that's healthy and, you know, not sedated, um, that's behaving and responding to things um, is really amazing. So I've seen, you know, my kids' brains starting when they were four years old, and it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, really. So that, that's been a, a huge innovation. Um, there's also been the, um, the advent of epigenetics, which your listeners may be familiar with, but if they're not, it is the understanding that our genes, which people used to think were set in stone, that our genes are also modified by the environment. So I may have a gene for a particular trait, but the environment, for example, what type of food that I eat, whether I experienced nurturing, caregiving, etc. The environment is going to determine whether that gene gets expressed or not. So that has really turned our whole understanding of genes and traits on its head. It really places the environment at the top of the hierarchy. Again, um, related to that is an appreciation about the intergenerational transmission Mm. of early stressors. Um, the, the data are still, you know, it's still early days in human research, but again, in basic neuroscience, um, rodent models, uh, it's been shown that, um, early life stress can travel across generations, which in many ways helps explain, um, you know, behaviors that, before it was unclear where those where those behaviors were coming from, and it might have come from a grandparent's generation. Now, the flip side to that is not only can stressors pass down, but enriching good environments can the, the effects of those environments can also be passed down through generations. So, if my grandparent had a particularly nurturing environment or particularly good health uh, and nutrition that also could be passed down to me and it it kind of has to work that way otherwise as a species we'd be in big trouble so so both things but it's it's making us pay attention to not only the immediate environment but the historical environment as well you know Um, that's an excellent point unfortunately as clinicians we tend to focus on deficits so when we talk to families about it uh, you know, epigenetics, we talk about, you know, free uh, birth trauma and, and things being passed on, but the resilience and other factors contributing to health and wellness can be passed on as well. And I think we would do well to emphasize that more. 
Yeah, yeah. And and thank goodness, thank goodness it happens that way. Um, I briefly mentioned sleep as the next frontier. Um, I think that there's a lot of really exciting work showing um, not only how we can improve sleep, but what the brain is actually doing when it's sleeping. And this becomes especially important for individuals who experienced earlier traumas, that some of the the processing, some of the ways that trauma gets under the skin, so to speak, has to do with the cognitive processes that are happening during sleep. And if we can understand what those processes are, it might open up opportunities for thinking about how to intervene during sleep, right? All of our interventions take place while we're awake, but there's a lot of different types of cognitive processes that are happening when we're sleeping. And sleep is modifiable, right? There's a lot of human behaviors that are hard to change, but sleep is something that we can train people to do better. And if that ends up, you know, really turning the dial for children and adolescents who experience early life stress, then that is, you know, that holds a lot of promise for being an intervention in the future. The last thing that I'm thinking of um, in terms of uh, research that is close to us has to do with the gut. So there's been a lot of interest in uh, the role of the gut or the relationship between the gut and the brain. They, uh, there are many who think of the gut as our extended brain because there's so many um, uh, neurochemicals that are produced in our gut. And our gut health is intimately associated with our emotional behaviors. And so... Um, We have some research showing that early life stress may in part elevate the risk for emotional difficulties by way of the gut health. Mm. And if that continues to be borne out, that's another very interesting area for interventions that improve gut health. So could we enter the brain through changing gut health? That's fascinating. It does feel like we're on the cusp of some really significant breakthroughs in the way that we approach trauma and the way that we approach healing the brain. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Well, Nim, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for being so gracious with us. And uh, um, folks, if you have questions for me, if there's other topics you'd like for us to address on these podcasts, please let me know. so grateful to have you here, Dr. Tottenham. And, and with that, you guys, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Have a wonderful holiday season. Bye-bye. Thank you.